We are in Acts chapter 7. Please turn there if you've got a Bible. We've already said it. Stephen, the character of Stephen here is the, the, the main character, the main focus of all of chapter 7, uh, in a sense. Really, he's deferring the focus through his sermon, um, but he, his, his story is kind of the focus here. We know from the previous chapter that he is a man of good repute. He is a man who is full of the spirit, full of wisdom and of faith, it's said. Uh, he was selected because of these characteristics as a deacon in the first church there. And now he's been arrested for preaching about Jesus and performing these um, incredible uh, miracles in his name. But what they've got him on is blasphemy. Like that's the charges that he's being accused with. So, and, and they lay it out in the end of chapter six from last week. They, they charge him with blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the temple and the holy place, or, or the holy place is the temple and the law. Okay. So, so four kind of indictments here against Stephen. And up until chapter seven, there's no recorded words that actually come from his mouth. We know he was speaking and preaching in the name of Jesus. Um, but here we actually get to hear his response. We know that the council, the Sanhedrin are, um, guys who don't believe in the resurrection. A lot of them are Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus or the things that he taught. And so this council saw at the end of chapter 6, it said they actually saw that even though they were coming at him with all of these these accusations, and it would have put most people on the defensive, these guys saw that he had the face of an angel. He wasn't concerned. He wasn't fretting. He wasn't worried. He was resting in Christ. He wasn't afraid. He stood tall. Now we see in verse 1 that the high priest give him a chance to respond. And boy, does he take advantage of this moment. So a lot of weeks we cover two, three, four verses. We're reading all of chapter 7 today. So just buckle up. Okay, so chapter 7. Verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? So that's now Stephen has the opportunity to respond. And verse 2, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt 
But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him a ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand And on that following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did dare not look. And the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, 
Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Repham and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, I venture to guess that most of us know the stories that Stephen references. And yet, maybe some of us listening this morning uh, have stopped up our ears to it. We've uh, clenched our jaws and gritted our teeth and said, no, I don't care. I don't care about that. And we try to do things our own way. And we can do some, some stuff in our own power. But it's not truly good because it's not done with you and your glory in mind. And it won't truly save us because there's a mountain of sin in our hearts that overwhelms any good that we might think we've done. And so today, Lord, just as Stephen preached so boldly and at least one person heard because Saul was transformed later, Lord, I pray that there would be some that hear today and that they would turn in repentance and faith to Jesus to save them. 
his name we pray. Amen. I realize that's a long uh, section of scripture. Just frankly, there was no place to stop in the middle. Uh, one flow of thought, and I don't know how, I don't know how long it took Stephen to, to give this sermon. Uh, for us, it was what, eight, ten minutes, something like that. Um, but, and I said this last week, and you know, we don't know for sure if Stephen knew that this was his last day on earth or not. But whether he thought so or not, there was no hint of hesitation in his response, was there? Um, we know that he's filled with the Spirit, right? Uh, chapter 6 told us that when they selected him as a deacon, said he was full of the Spirit. And so we know where his confidence in this message comes from, right? It comes from the Spirit that's that's living and moving inside of him. He knew, too, that Jesus had said he would have this opportunity. We looked at this passage last week from Luke 12. Basically, Jesus says, look, they're going to drag you in front of important people. Don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, because the Holy Spirit will teach you in that moment what you should say. When Christians speak the truth about Jesus, we have God's approval. We have the the blessing of the Spirit giving us that testimony. Stephen knew that if the gospel message was going to continue going out and moving out from Jerusalem, remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said it would be that way. Stephen knew if, if that was going to continue, he was going to have to be bold. He was going to have to actually believe Jesus when he said, This is your opportunity. You're going to be dragged in front of important people. That's your opportunity to bear witness. Stephen believed it, and Stephen did it for the namesake of Christ. I think he knew that when he was answering this council, he wasn't standing there alone. And if you look up pictures uh, of what this council room sort of looked like, it's kind of what you would imagine. You've got a, a semicircle with all of the council members, we're talking maybe 70 guys on this council, and the witness or the accused is standing right in the middle of that horseshoe. This is an intimidating place to be. He, he knew that they'd already thrown his buddies in prison and given them big-time lashing. They knew that he'd, they'd already murdered Jesus and hung him on a cross. So I kind of think he had an idea of what his testimony that day might cause, but it didn't stop him from speaking truth according to the Spirit. He knew he wasn't alone, and he was given a chance to answer, and boy, did he answer. I think there's wisdom in how he responds to the question. It starts right at the beginning. Look at verse 2. The first thing he says, uh, just, just imagine, just for a second, before we kind of look at his response, if you were put in front of a group of 50-ish people and said, tell them about Jesus, how would you start? What would you say? Well, Stephen is in a similar sort of situation. He gets the chance to respond. Look how he begins. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. I think there's wisdom here. And how he responds. Now, the high priest, he says, 
are these things true? He gives them a chance to respond, but we can see by their their past history and kind of what happens at the end of this, we can see that they've kind of already made up their minds, haven't they? Sure appears that way. But right off the bat, Stephen wants to capture his Jewish audience's attention. And so he does it by appealing to their common history, right? He says, brothers and fathers, I'm one of you. That's a term of respect, father. He says, I'm I'm one of you. We're together on this. And, And then he just kind of almost systematically walks through Jewish history, doesn't he? He doesn't start all the way at Adam, but he starts with kind of one of their most prized ancestors of Abraham. He starts there, and he talks about how God's people were specified through certain physical and ceremonial differences from the people groups around them, and he he points out circumcision in the first uh, verses 2 through 8. He says that that's what Abraham did for Isaac, and Isaac did, and that's kind of what set Jews apart. God's people were special both in how they acted and how they looked and what they did and all of these things, they were set apart. But as you think about Stephen's message here, remember who he's talking to, a Jewish council. Notice how what he says, the flow of thought as we went through, how it kind of continues blazing the trail forward for the gospel to move from just a Jewish audience to a broader Gentile audience because the gospel goes to Samaria. If you just kind of peek forward in chapter eight and then specifically like chapter, well, I missed a page, chapter nine, you, you start seeing, okay, the gospel and these preachers of the gospel are starting to move outside of Jerusalem. Philip goes after Stephen Saul is converted, and then you've got the dream that God gives to Peter, which really solidifies what is starting here. I think this is important because really Peter has already set the groundwork for this in his two sermons in the book of Acts already. He's speaking to Jewish audiences, both in chapter 3 and 4, and Stephen does here. They're speaking to Jewish audiences who, in their minds, are already God's people. Right, so when the, the, the council is hearing this, Stephen knows it. They believe we're right with God. We're in the right here because we're God's chosen people. We're Jews after all. But Peter and now Stephen boldly argues that they actually need to repent and turn to God by trusting in the name and person of the resurrected Jesus, God's own son, the Messiah. Now, it's true. The council has Jewish heritage on their side, if you will. But these early preachers in Acts are making a specific point, I think, and it's this. These guys weren't actually God's children after all. Right? Paul contends for this in a lot of his letters to the church later on. He says, faith in Christ is what is required for salvation. Not traditional Jewish ceremony like circumcision, or sacrifices. 
In fact, this is really one of the major underlying shifts that Stephen presents here in his sermon. God's message of salvation comes first to the Jews, yes, but it will also go beyond them to the, to the world, to the Gentiles. Oh, that despised group of unclean foreigners who have no part in God's family, or so they thought. Some of the early Christians thought this too, and that was part of Paul's writing as well, to reconcile and understand that God had smashed down the dividing wall between believers. So when Stephen comes preaching this message that Jesus is the only way, not the temple, not the sacrificial system, not just by obedience and works of the law, but by trusting in Jesus Christ, you might be able to understand how the council couldn't see past their own anger here. In a sense, he is doing away with everything that's precious to them. And that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? It it tears apart our man-made structure of how we can be good and righteous towards God. And the, the truth of the gospel just comes in and says, no, that won't do. That's not the way. And that's what Stephen's doing here. Now, they've, this, this council has proven by their actions and attitudes that they follow in the footsteps of many of their Old Testament forefathers, right? Their Old Testament ancestors who constantly resisted the work of the Spirit. And the way that Stephen puts it, he says, there's not a prophet that lived that you didn't persecute. No, nobody's fallen through the cracks here. He, he's just saying it happens across the board. Um, Let me point a couple of these things out to you. Look at verse 9. He mentions Joseph. His brothers, it says, were jealous of him. And so what did they do? They sold him into slavery. Persecution. Look at verse 25. You've got Moses. His fellow Jews didn't understand God's salvation through his hand. And so they, they ran him off, right? They said, who are you? Who put you in charge of us? You're going to kill me like you did the other guy? Look at verse 39. This is real revealing. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and their hearts in their hearts they turned to Egypt. I mean, can you imagine that? It says that in other areas of Old Testament history too. Can you imagine 400 years of a people being in slavery and then they get out and things don't go well and easy and they say, man, just take us back. Can you imagine saying that? Well, Stephen, in wisdom, picks four major periods of of Jewish history and he connects them with uh, at least four different characters that were uh, a part of that. So let me just point these out. Verses 2 to 8. He talks about the patriarchal age with Abraham. In verses 9 through 19, you've got the Egyptian exile and Joseph. Verses 20 through 44, he's talking about Moses. He's talking about the exodus from Egypt. He's talking about the the wandering in the wilderness and their history there. And then in verses 45 through 50, you've got David and slash Solomon and the establishment of the monarchy. And that sort of thing. And here's the question. Maybe you were thinking as, as we were reading through this. Now remember the audience. You've got a, 
a group of Jewish traditional men who, for, for the most part, have made it their life's work to, to read and study and understand the law. And what, is, what does Stephen do in his sermon to them? He talks about their history. Now, if there was, if there was a group of people in Jerusalem who sh- should have known Jewish history, it would have been these guys. And so, honestly, it's surprising that he gets to say all that he does before they stop him and just say, we heard this before, Stephen. These guys would have known it. So why does Stephen do this? He could say anything he wants in response to this question. Why does he just walk through the history that these guys are so well-versed in already? Shouldn't they have known it maybe even better than him? John Stott points out that one of the main connecting features of these four eras that Stephen talks about is that God's presence wasn't limited to any just one particular place here. They were, these, this group was terribly concerned with the defamation of the temple, of the holy place, of the law, because that's what, where God was, and that's how God communicated. And yet, all of these things, first of all, God goes to Abraham, who has no prior background with God, and he says, you're mine, I want you to go and do these things. And so from there, then you've got God calling his people to different places and doing different things and uh, sharing the truth of who the true uh, father is with the people in those areas. And there's not just one particular place. Verse 48 through 50 really drive this point home. The first part of 48 Reminds us, he says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. So Stephen's message to the Sanhedrin really rocked their world because he was saying that the God of the Old Testament is a still living God, is a God who is on the move, who is always calling his people out to new places, to to new adventures and always going with them and even going before them where they go. There's no denying it uh, when you read through this sermon. Stephen knew his biblical history. He knew his people's story. And when he was speaking before the council, I hope you can see, this, these are not the, the, the ramblings of a nervous man. Stephen's mind is not spinning out of control in panic here. Even faced with the possibility of, of death, He's not just going off the top of his head here. I think this gives truth to what we've said already. The Spirit was teaching him what to say in this moment. And he just recalls with these Jewish leaders their history, but he connects it with something that they really needed to hear. He connects it with their stubbornness and their hard heart. He says, like your forefathers before you, you failed to respond in faith to God's gracious invitation. They thought they could confine God to a box of a physical connection to the temple in Jerusalem and that being the only place. But that system came to an end with Jesus. The council, really, what what was happening was that they were trying to disconnect 
Jesus Christ from Israel's history. Even today, some Christians, some uh, quote-unquote theologians would have you minimize or forget or unhitch the Old Testament from your current understanding of the Bible based on, well, this new covenant through Christ. But does Stephen do that? One chance to speak the, the truth here, and Stephen goes straight to the Old Testament. He doesn't discount Jesus, that's coming, he connects it all, but he starts back there. He actually leans into the Old Testament, and then he expertly ties it back to Jesus, who Jesus himself says is the fulfillment of the law and prophets, not, not come to do away with them. Martin Luther faced this same kind of thinking and problem in his own day, and he made this statement. He says, the Old Testament is the cradle in which the Christ child is laid. Obviously, there's some some allusions to, to the Christmas story there. But he's saying Jesus was born into the cradle of all of that Old Testament history. You don't understand the Old Testament really without Christ. And it's important for us. The new birth, the New Testament finds its birth in the Old Testament. It's not irrelevant at all. The Old Testament supports the New Testament. It explains it even. If you've re- read through the book of Hebrews, you'll know that that's true. But this council was accusing Stephen of blaspheming God and Moses both. They were accusing Stephen of demeaning the law and the temple. But n- did you notice Stephen's sermon flips the script. Boy, the turntables have turned here. His sermon reveals that by betraying and murdering God's righteous one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, they were actually the ones demeaning the law and the temple. Because those things all point to Jesus. And he highlights that rejecting the Lord and his Messiah has actually been the norm for Israel throughout their history. This Jewish council put all of their salvific emphasis on the temple, on the Torah. They told the people to have any relationship with God at all, you have to go to the temple, you have to keep the Old Testament law, and plus all of these other hundred ones that we're going to introduce to you. But Stephen is just toppling this message with a, with a grace-filled one. What he's saying here will be affirmed and lived out in the church for the rest of the book of Acts. And guys, it's still being lived out in the church today. He's proving that the God of Israel is not a God limited to specific geographical spot in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. God is the God of the whole world. He's the God of Jews and Gentiles. The Great Commission... Jesus' challenge in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, is that Christians will be witnesses to the gospel until he returns. The council and many Jews in that day loved the symbol of God's affection, but they missed the substance of his love through Jesus. They hung on to the illustration that was given but they actually missed out on the reality in Christ. It's the same hindrance for a lot of people today. 
especially this time of year, because it's, it's, it's relatively simple to recognize that Chris, Christmas is about a person named Jesus who was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Lots of people will readily admit to that, but it's something altogether different to believe that this is the Savior of the world. And that's why we're grateful to sing Christmas carols that connect those things like we did this morning. Some people even will acknowledge the existence of God. They might even believe that Jesus died a death to save people from their sin. But it takes the stirring of the Spirit in a person's heart to admit that His death was necessary to save a sinner like me. Right? Very few people would say that this world is a perfect place. There's a lot of nonsense going on. But fewer people will admit that they have a role in that, that their heart contributes to it. That's the way that this council was. They they were standing on tradition, thinking that they were God's chosen few. And Stephen is here saying, no, you need to repent like everyone else. Rather than allowing the law to point them to their need for a savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as he puts it, they use the law unlawfully to encourage their own law keeping as good enough to please God on their own. Rather than the presence of God in the temple reminding them of Jesus as our high priest, they saw the temple building as his badge of honor of this special love that God had for them as communicated that way. They kept the law and glorified the temple but they missed Jesus. Stephen is saying that God is not confined within the laws of the temple, and he's certainly not a caged animal for the enjoyment of people. God is limitless in calling whomever he wills. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, and soon the Gentiles. Look at verse 51. This These last uh, verses 51 through 53 are, there's kind of this major indictment of the council. And this is no doubt what causes the reaction that follows. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Now, Husbands, I don't recommend you start off an argument with your wife this way. Stiff-necked, not a phrase I would use. Um, But this is how he responds. He says, this is who you are. He's just just being real. They don't like it. Uh, If blasphemy is the thing that they were accusing Stephen of, well, they had grounds for it now, right? But it's funny that Stephen accuses them of basically the same thing. He says that they were uncircumcised in heart and ears. And he even says they were resisting the Holy Spirit. And um, I don't think Stephen was hoping for the outcome that we see in the next verses. But I think he was prepared for it. I think he was ready for it. Look at verse 54. And when they heard these things... They have a different response. 
than the people in chapter 3, right? They, it says that they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That's, that's anger. That's defiance. That's rebellion. That's hatred. They were enraged. Verse 57, after he, after he's talking about Jesus more, he says, man, I see Jesus. They, it says verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. You know what they're doing? La, 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 la. You know what I'm saying? They didn't want to hear anymore about Jesus. So they stopped up their ears and they yelled and it says that they rushed at him. And then, you know the story. They cast him out of the city and they started stoning him. We won't go into all of what that looks like, but he dies as a result. And it says in the end of verse 57, those who were there, the witnesses, they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now certainly that's Luke kind of giving a little foreshadowing of what's to come with Saul and his conversion in the next couple of chapters. But notice again, and I pointed this out at the end of chapter 6 with the, the Sanhedrin and their face of anger and Stephen and his face of an angel. There's the same kind of contrast that Luke points out in these verses. You, you can see it. It says that the council was enraged. They ground their teeth at him. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped up their ears. They rushed and grabbed him. And they threw him out of the city and they stoned him. But now look at Stephen. Full of the Holy Spirit. Saw the glory of God. And said, behold, I see the heavens opened. Son of man standing at the right hand of God. In verse 59. And as they were stoning him. Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So you've got anger and defiance, and then you've got peace and love even. Look at what he says in verse 60. This This is a clear reflection of Jesus. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And we said this, he fell asleep. He died. Even with his very last breath, Stephen was not thinking about himself. Stephen was more concerned with the eternity of those persecuting him than with his own life because he knew his eternity was secure. He was resting in the plan and purpose of God he, he figuratively and, and actually literally caught a glimpse of the risen Christ now standing in power and glory and authority at the right hand of God. How else could he respond this way when heavy stones are being dropped on his head to end his life? How else could he respond in love? How could he reflect Jesus like this were it not for the, for the truth that he was resting in, in, in Christ. And I'll ask us the same question as we begin to think about applying it to our own hearts. How can we expect to reflect Jesus if we've never seen him like Stephen did? Stephen identified the council's biggest problem. And truth be told, it's the same problem for all of us 
for people today, our hearts have to be changed by Jesus. There's no other way. He said this to them, your heart has to be changed. He said that theirs were uncircumcised. They needed to be born again. But he's saying, look, you guys are disconnected from God the Father, but you don't realize it. The Jews were disconnected from God the Father without Jesus. And the reality is, so are we. It doesn't matter if you believe in a higher power. It doesn't matter if you believe that there is someone who created all of this stuff. You're disconnected from that higher power, from that creator God, if you haven't trusted Christ. But the beauty of the gospel is is tucked and nestled away here in Stephen's sermon. So we got to see that too. He says, in essence, he says, those who have been redeemed by Jesus, the righteous one, those people rest in the Holy Spirit. They're not working hard to earn their salvation day after day because it's already been done on the cross. So they just rest in the Spirit. That's how Christians have joy in the midst of horrible circumstances. That's how Stephen can forgive and even pray for the salvation of his his persecutors with his last breath. It's because he's secure in Christ. The council was resisting the words and the ways of God. Stephen was resting in God's plan and purposes. You see the difference between resting and resisting? Now, the, the righteous one, that's a, a messianic title that Jesus um, was given here. That really probably would have graded on the conscience of the Sanhedrin. They very likely would have remembered it from Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, if you haven't read that chapter recently, I'd encourage you, especially this time of year, in connecting the work of Christ as born as a ma- in a manger with his work on the cross, read Isaiah 53, but here's what verse 11 says. By his knowledge, his being the Lord, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Now those are both terms that Stephen and Peter used for Jesus already in their messages to the Sanhedrin. Righteous one and servant of the Lord, God's servant. And they're pointing, obviously, to Jesus as the fulfillment of these things. That's what they've been calling Jesus all along. It says, this guy, the righteous one, God's servant Jesus, what will he do? Isaiah 53, 11, and he will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So as the righteous one, Jesus will bear the iniquity of all God's people. Iniquity is sin. God's people are revealed when the gospel is preached, right? That's how you were saved, if you've been saved, is you heard the gospel preached. You heard the word of Jesus and redemption of sin and your sin and realized that there was only one way to be free from that, and that's to put your faith in Christ because of his sacrifice. So the question that we have to ask in in light of this chapter and seeing seeing the response of the Sanhedrin, 
knowing that we're very similar in the place of our hearts with them, separated from God. When the gospel is preached, how do you respond? When the gospel is preached, how do you respond? Do you stop up your ears? Do you clench your jaw and grit your teeth? Do you wait for it to be over so you can get out of there? Or do you repent? Do you trust and rest in the Lord? Does the Spirit work in your heart and, as, as Stephen says, is circumcise that and, and cut away and refresh and, and give you a new life? Does that happen when you hear the gospel? Have you repented? Do you have faith? A.W. Tozer says this, The truest and most acceptable repentance is to reverse the acts and attitudes of which we repent. We can best repent our neglect by neglecting him no more. Let us begin to think of him as one to be worshipped and obeyed. Let us throw open every door and invite him in. Let us surrender to him every room in the temple of our hearts and insist that he enter and occupy as Lord and Master within his own dwelling. Will you do that today? Will you rest in the plan and purpose of God? Will you let him occupy every room in your heart and insist that that's his dwelling to occupy rather than your own? Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. I would add this, Lord, cause them to have new hearts by your spirit. Not to resist, but to believe the gospel and be saved. Let's pray. God, we're, we're so... Spoiled is not the right word, but Lord, we're so spoiled in the sense that we have this message accessible in a variety of different forms. Lord, we can pick it up and read it. We can listen to it. We can look at it on our devices. Lord, there's, there's no shortage of opportunity for us to be in your word. And yet, Lord, so oftentimes we care about so many other things more. And generally, that's because our hearts are far from you. So, Lord, reconcile us today. Our, our hearts are, are separated without Christ, but we've seen as the righteous one, he bears the iniquity of the sins of God's people. He's taken our sin to the cross, Lord. And so I pray for strength to believe, help our unbelief. Lord, for those who are listening today that have maybe... Uh, put up those walls in their heart to, to responding in faith. Lord, I pray that you would knock those down. Lord, I pray that there would not be a resistance in spirits today, in lives and hearts. I pray that they would not resist the moving of your spirit, the call of repenting and turning to you, but instead, Lord, that they would rest in Christ's finished work. Surely Stephen was doing that. And the only reason how he could love people with his last breath like he did was because he knew he was going to be with you in just a moment. 
And so, Lord, help us to cry out, to give over. Lord, maybe we have we've been saved. Um, and yet, Lord, uh, we have hidden away parts of our heart, maybe little rooms of, of sin. Lord, I pray that we would relinquish those to you today. Give them over and insist that you enter and occupy them as Lord and Master. Lord, uh, we don't do this because we think that this is going to earn us heaven. We do this because we know that Christ has already done it and we just rest in his work. And we don't have to go any other way. In fact, you've told us that we can't. We have to go through him. And so I pray that that would be what we hear and do today. Call us back. Save us. Refresh us. Lord, and help us to love your word. Help us to know it so that if we are called to give a testimony and bear witness, that we know exactly what to say. That you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.